especially with mm-hmm. endurance training, but in any sport, you want to think about accumulating years of training and adaptations. So will this further the cause of the bigger picture or will this give me a short-term benefit for maybe a long-term negative effect? Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. The market for dietary supplements to enhance sports performance has exploded in recent years. This is particularly true for elite athletes. But athletes at all different levels of sports are drawn to these products. You probably have tried some of these supplements yourself to improve your workouts. Many popular supplements, like caffeine, have been studied in the context of intermittent performance enhancement and are used with that goal in mind. But the effects of chronic supplementation, particularly in endurance training, is not as well understood. Furthermore, it is not as clear how performance-enhancing supplements influence the adaptive response to exercise training. Training-induced adaptations are the product of repeat stimuli from exercise sessions, as well as accumulated changes in gene expression. Dietary intake of certain substances can, in theory, affect training adaptations. They can achieve this by increasing the exercise stimulus allowing an athlete to train longer and harder or reduce perceived exertion, or by altering cellular responses to exercise-induced stress. In particular, supplements like dietary nitrate, buffering agents, and antioxidants may modify the cellular signaling response to training by affecting acid-base balance or redox status. But how significant is the impact of these supplements from a practical standpoint? How much is needed to achieve changes in performance? For that matter, it is possible that these effects on cellular signaling may actually have a negative impact on the adaptive response to training. These are not easy questions to answer, which is why I am happy to welcome Jeff Rothschild to the show. Jeff is a registered dietitian with a master's degree in nutritional sciences and a specialist in sports dietetics. He is also the creator of the HumanOS fasting program in our app. Jeff recently wrote a review examining the impact of dietary supplements on adaptations to endurance training and is here to discuss his findings of what they might mean for athletes and active people out there. So, Jeff, welcome to Humanoist Radio. Hey, Dan. It's always nice to chat with you. Actually, I have to say welcome back because you were a guest with Greg Potter on the subject of breakfast skipping, which is actually one of the most popular shows in our library. Cool. I'll reference that in show notes. So what stimulated you to write this monster review? Like you said, I'm a registered dietitian, and I spent most of my time over the past five years or so working with people on an individual basis, so in a private practice setting. Athletes ranging from people just trying to complete their first 5K to people, Olympians, people competing at the world championship level. It's a really a range of people, but there's a few common issues that come up. One of the things is, what should I eat before exercise? But when we're thinking of supplements, there's this handful of supplements. Well, let me take a step back. There's a ton of supplements that are out there, as anyone knows who's walked into a health food store. Most of them probably don't work, but there's a handful that are pretty well supported by evidence to offer some kind of acute performance benefit. So the ones that typically come to mind, caffeine, sodium bicarbonate, beta alanine, creatine, these kind of things. So, of course, when working with people that want to go faster and, again, at, at any level, whether it's recreational race or the Olympics, it's more fun when you go faster. So there's certain things we would recommend. But then someone asked me a question once, and it became kind of an obvious question. If this helps me for a race, should I take it every day? It's a good question, and I thought about it for a long time. And this is a question, from, in my head, at least went back a number of years. And there's really not 
nearly as much information on what happens if you take it every day compared with just taking it for that day or for some things might be take a week or two weeks of loading where we know, okay, if you take this for two weeks or four weeks or one week, you're going to be able to go faster. But does it interfere or enhance the long game, especially with endurance training? But in any sport, you want to think about accumulating years of training and adaptations. So will this further the cause of the bigger picture or will this give me a short-term benefit for maybe a long-term negative effect? As I took a deeper dive into your review, that idea specifically struck me. Some supplement that could make the exercise in that moment feel easier or make you perform better could potentially lessen some of the training effect. We can dive into that more today. How did you decide what supplements to review for this purpose? It starts out with just a general inquiry. I was kind of my own curiosity. And then I realized there was a lot of substance there that was worth writing a big paper about. Like I said, there's those handful that are kind of always mentioned essentially in the same sentence. So sodium mm-hmm. bicarbonate, beta alanine as the buffering agents, dietary nitrate or beetroot juice, caffeine, creatine, antioxidants. So those are the ones that are, let's say, more or less accepted that they're, at least in some contexts, can offer some performance enhancement. Then from there, I look, which I've been studying in a training capacity. So taking it for, let's say, at least three weeks, generally three to 12 weeks training studies and measuring things that we care about, maybe antioxidant status, but uh, especially performance, VO2 max, all these markers of training and performance and or performance itself. Once we dove in there, it became clear that these ones are not even that well studied, but there's, there's a handful of studies on most of those. And then there's a few other fringe ones that we mentioned in passing in the paper, but aren't really very well studied. So many supplements exist. Fewer have research on them. So many that do exist that don't have the much research on them, they might not have an effect at all. Or they could, they just haven't undergone rigorous scientific review. And how would you know that, right? Unless you actually could detect something immediate. And it's also hard to parse out the placebo effect if you purchase something that you think is going to affect your performance because you read about it being able to do so. That in itself can cause perceived effects. Let's talk about buffering agents first. Tell us about what we're talking about here with buffering agents. There's a few more than these in the category, but generally the most commonly studied and the most commonly used ones are beta alanine and sodium bicarbonate. Buffering, if you think back to chemistry, it has to do with pH. When we start exercising, especially at a higher intensity, the pH drops. And that's part of the fatigue process. Let's say the fatigue is extremely complex, but let's just say when the pH drops, your muscles don't contract as well. If you start by raising the pH, so if you take baking soda, sodium bicarbonate is also baking soda, so that's a buffer, that can increase the pH, which makes it more alkaline. So if you start out with an increased pH and then it lowers by some amount through exercise, you're not as low as if you started at a normal pH. And that's Mm -hmm. essentially what's happening. And so it allows increased training intensity typically, but also the increased pH or the lack of a decrease in pH can affect in some ways these mitochondrial adaptations. To explain that briefly, the point largely of endurance training, maybe not the whole point, but one of the key points is to improve our mitochondrial function. So we want our mitochondria, the things that make energy, we want them to get bigger. We want them to work better. There's some evidence that a decreased pH can interfere with some of those adaptations. So by increasing the pH compared to, let's say, the same stimulus with a lower pH, you might see better adaptation from that given workout. When you are training and exercising, you are producing more hydrogen ions from the increased energy need. Increased hydrogen ions can then interfere with the contractile apparatus of the muscles. So that is one of the components that leads to fatigue. Secondarily, baroreceptors can perceive hydrogen and have an effect on limiting the central ability of the brain to send a signal to muscle. So you have two different fatigue mechanisms, central fatigue and peripheral fatigue. 
both of which are going to detect circulating acid. So if you would make your blood more alkaline ahead of and during the exercise, you can delay fatigue and train harder. But the hydrogen stimulus is causing the adaptation. So if you're trying to get the maximal training effect, you might be able to train harder, but are you limiting the stimulus that would help your body get more fit? If you train regularly with bicarbonate, what do we know about long-term effects? There's one study that matched training intensity. Of course, that would mean there would be a difference in pH. And in that case, the bicarbonate helped the adaptations, but there's a few others that haven't shown effect. But what it seems to really come down to, and this is the case with sodium bicarbonate and as well as some of the other supplements we'll talk about, is it will likely allow you to train harder. So if you're doing, let's just say, an interval workout, maybe it's three minutes on and three minutes off at your maximal effort, you're going to create a lot of lactate. And related to that buffering capacity, by taking bicarbonate, for example, it's going to allow you to create more lactate. We should probably talk about lactic acid and lactate and that confusion, but lactate is a good thing. It's used as an energy source and it's used as a signaling molecule. And acidic part of it is what you just referred to as the hydrogen ions. That's the part, the increased hydrogen ions. It's not from the lactic acid per se, but it's the increased hydrogen that is the the quote-unquote bad stuff in our context. So the lactate is a good thing. So when you can create more lactate by essentially pushing your glycolytic system harder, then that can likely lead to greater signaling. And you would push your glycolytic system harder by training harder? Yeah, so it would allow you to do, let's just say, going back to that three-minute intervals, if we measured the wattage that you could do for three minutes on, three minutes off for, let's say, four to six intervals, it would very likely be higher if you've supplemented the sodium bicarbonate. So the accumulation of that greater work output, probably combined with the increased lactate, circulating lactate levels, would probably lead to a greater training adaptation, probably through a number of mechanisms, actually. Right. So when you're producing more lactic acid, association of the lactate from the acid, the hydrogen, you are left with hydrogen ions, which lead to the acidity and fatigue, and a lactate, which can be used as a fuel, but it also is serving as a signaling mechanism that can affect epigenetic regulation and gene transcription. So that is also a signal promoting some of the enhancement in exercise function from stimulating lactate more regularly. Exactly. So we're getting essentially less free hydrogen ions and more lactate relative to exercising in a normal condition. Interesting. So if you're taking sodium bicarbonate, you could buffer the acid, but still produce the lactate. Well, that's exactly right. And that's in the studies that don't tend to show an effect with, let's say, with bicarbonate or beta-alanine. So beta-alanine is kind of lumped into the same category, but it's a little bit different. That works more as an intracellular buffering agent, whereas bicarbonate is an extracellular, so in the blood buffering agent. But the, the biggest takeaway from this paper is that you need to grab more lactate in order to see the training adaptations, especially with regard to the buffering agents. Unless there's some sort of important signaling that is occurring from the acid itself, you wouldn't necessarily be limiting the training effect by taking bicarbonate. In fact, you could be enhancing it. Right. You sort of have your cake and eat it too. That's what it seems like. The only, let's say, stipulation is that you got to work harder than you would have otherwise. So if you just clamped the wattage, so if we said you're going to do three minutes on, three minutes off at, let's just say, 300 watts on a bike, then with or without sodium bicarbonate, it probably won't make a difference. There's a chance that it might. To speculate, it would probably be more apparent in the lower intensity training, but that hasn't been well studied. If we just stick with interval training and the intensities are clamped, at, let's just say 300 watts on and, and three minutes rest, with or without bicarbonate probably won't make a difference. But mm-hmm. if it's three minutes at maximal effort and you're going to essentially be able to create more watts, more work during those three minutes, that's probably how and why we're going to see a difference. Again, related to a few things, partly the lactate, probably the increased mechanical load and stress on the muscles. That's a good way to think of it. If you think about the ratio of research to actual usage in the real world, I would bet more research subjects have used it than just general population. 
because it tastes terrible. And once you get past the taste, if you take too much, you can go to the bathroom or you might have to go to the bathroom very quickly. It's around 200 to 400 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. So it usually works out to about, for an average size person, about a tablespoon. But you can divide that across two or three servings to break it up a little bit. It's highly variable between people, how much you need and how much you can tolerate. So be wary of that. Although it's uncomfortable, it's not really that big of a downside. So you have to go to the bathroom, but <laughs> you want to just make sure you're in a good place to do that. It's hydrophilic, so it's going to pull water towards it. And if you take too big of a dose, it's just going to move right through you. And you're not in a good place. When you go to the bathroom, you are in a bad situation. Yeah. Let me say one more thing about bicarbonate. There are now products that are potassium bicarbonate or some sort of mixture of different ions. So it's not just sodium. So you, you can lessen the sodium load. I actually do take a potassium bicarbonate. I prefer it. You can look for those on Amazon if you want to try this, but you don't have to necessarily have just sodium bicarbonate to get that effect. So the bicarbonate is what's really probably driving a lot of the benefit. Sodium could have an impact too. But anyway, tell us about beta alanine. What is it? It's also considered a buffering agent. Actually, there's a lot of different ways that it can work. It's actually not even entirely clear. It can improve the calcium sensitivity in the muscles. It can reduce lipid peroxidation. It can affect pH. It can reduce perceived exertion. It's pretty interesting that there's a lot of ways that it can work. Now, one of the most important points, people might see it in pre-workout supplements a lot. Really, to be effective, it's the dose is around three to six grams per day for around four weeks before you start seeing a noticeable mm. improvement. If you take an acute dose, you might feel a tingling thing, which is harmless, so which kind of makes people think it's working. So a lot of pre-workouts that combine that with caffeine, it's really the caffeine that's working and then you get a tingling feeling. So you think, oh, this, this must be doing a ton. But acutely, that tingling does nothing beneficial, probably nothing harmful, like I said. So that's, I think, an important point. So when people just have it in their pre-workouts to get the actual benefits of it, Again, it needs to be around four to six grams or, or even more per day for at least around four weeks. So, Do people level up with it? So you start taking four to six grams right from day one? Because of the tingling, you might want to work into it slowly. But typically with that four to six grams, you'd want to split it into three to four doses per day. So it's a bit of a hassle. I definitely have some clients that would use it. It can be helpful for the right person for sure. It can also then allow you to sustain exercise at a higher intensity. So you can tolerate a greater training volume. From a practical standpoint, it can let you do more work during these high-intensity interval training type of workouts. And then, again, that accumulated work is what will give you an additional benefit beyond just the interval training or just taking it by itself. There's a, a figure in the paper that shows improvement from the baseline with beta-alanine. So if you just take beta-alanine, let's say it's a four-kilometer time trial, so it's a short time trial, you might see like a one-and-a-half or so percent improvement in performance just taking beta-alanine. And then if you do just sprint training alone for four weeks or five weeks, you'll see about a 3% improvement from baseline. So we could go from about a one and a half to a 3% improvement. And then if you do the combination of sprint training with beta alanine, that might bump you up to about a 4% improvement from baseline. They really are separate but additive effects. Now, the important point again there is if you do the exact same training with or without it, it's probably not going to have any difference. Not everyone has access to wattage, but you can think of it as running speed or whatever mm -hmm. that unit of work is. If you do a set amount, a clamped amount in these intervals, you're probably not going to see any improvement. You'll still see some improvement from the training itself, but not necessarily from the supplements. Really, the key there, in my opinion, and based on what we found in this paper, is to allow these open-ended efforts that allow maximal work rates to elevate blood lactate compared with a placebo. Has there been any work looking at the combination of beta-alanine and sodium bicarbonate? There has not a ton of training studies, but it's a bit unclear. One, in the studies that we included in this paper, they were supervised training. 
all but one study went, that have used these co-ingestion protocols, the participant training sessions were not monitored. So we don't know, were they doing more work? Were they doing less work? We're doing the same. That's a really important differentiator between the training and to understand what's happening. It's really hard to say. They tend to have similar improvements. So you can use one or the other and both aren't always more helpful. If you have a research study, you have a specific type of exercise test. And so it's probably that one or the other will benefit in this type of exercise test. But in practicality, if you think of like a cycling race or a triathlon, there's probably types of intervals or types of efforts you do where one might be a little bit more helpful than the others. I do think mm -hmm. if I was working with an athlete that was was really everything needed to be as good as it could be, there's probably a reason to do both. But since now we're talking about the context of training, probably one or the other is just as fine. I found it interesting that beta-alanine increases intramuscular stores of carnosine. Harkening back to my show with Pankaj Kapahi from the Buck on AGEs or advanced glycation end products, carnosine can help prevent the formation of AGEs. So, yeah. And that's part of the, we talked about initially, there could be some potentially less beneficial effects because it can act as an antioxidant. And same thing with the beetroot juice. So it, there's a potential for getting less of a training effect. So if you were, mm -hmm. especially again, if you're clamping these intervals, keep referring to, but you know, again, if the training is equated, you might even see negative effect because you're not going to get that same stimulus. The workout, you get better because inside your muscles during and after a workout, stuff happens to keep it kind of simple. There's a bunch of unbelievably complex and elegant amount of signaling that happens. And if you interfere with that, and if you dampen that, that's one of the reasons, again, what we wanted to look at in this paper. Are these signals dampened? Are they increased? Mm -hmm. And so from the antioxidant perspective, it's possible that beta-alanine could have dampened some of that signaling. And it's also possible that maybe the combination of allowing you to work a little harder, create more lactate, but then dampening the oxidant signaling, there's some counteracting effects there such a difficult thing to assess because yeah. if you're training at a very high volume, then that perhaps could be a good thing. If you're not training at a high volume, you're lessening the training effect. It's really difficult to know how best to intervene exactly. without direct clinical trials that show that it is beneficial in this group of people with this fitness level and this training amount. I don't think we can assess that on our own very easily. No. As a takeaway so far of the bicarbonate and the beta-alanine, if you're doing intervals that you're trying to push your efforts, then there probably is a benefit. And I don't think there's a downside. At the very least, it's probably not harmful, but maybe not beneficial. I don't see a downside to staying on beta-alanine, for example. What's the minimal length event that you think beta-alanine ingestion over four weeks could augment? One minute to 10 minutes is probably where it has the most effect. Got it. Now, people might then rule out, let's say, triathlon, but especially with Olympic triathlon or that's draft legal, there's a lot of surges or you might be running up a hill or in cycling road racing, it's a lot of short efforts. It's not like a, you see a five-hour race in the Tour de France. It's not a five-hour steady effort. It's, it's a series right. of these sharp efforts. So I do think there's a benefit there. But as far as like how much of an effort that it's a duration a interval that it's going to really help, it seems to be with both bicarbonate and beta-alanine in that one to 10 minute range. Very interesting. Let's move on to dietary nitrate. This is a subject that I've covered in a different show with Jonathan Burtett, neuroradiologist from Wake Forest. He was looking at the addition of beetroot juice supplementation in a group of older people. And interestingly, looking at their brains under functional magnetic resonance imaging, and he noticed that the functional connectivity of brain regions was improved with the addition of beetroot juice prior to exercise training. So he had a control group three times a week, 50 minutes exercise, then another group, three times a week, 50 minutes of exercise, plus beetroot juice. Those that had beetroot had better brain connectivity. We do know that beetroot juice is a vasodilator, so it can probably get more blood flow into the brain. 
with that context in mind, let's talk about dietary nitrate in the sports performance context. So tell us about how you think it's working and what the mechanisms are perceived to be. Again, from a practical standpoint of someone using it for training, the increased training intensity that it allows is going to be the important thing. Again, if you clamp your training, probably not going to have as much of a difference, especially with high-intensity training. Let's drill into that term a little bit, clamping training, mm-hmm. just so people yeah. get it. Explain yeah. that in non-expert terms. Sure, yeah. So let's think of it as with running. So if you're going to go on the treadmill at the gym and do, let's say, intervals, maybe you're running three minutes on and then resting a minute you might set the treadmill at a certain speed, eight miles an hour, 10 miles an hour, whatever it is that's appropriate for you. And you'll run at that speed. If you were outside on a track and I said, run in three minutes as fast as you can and then rest, chances are you, one, you probably won't hold the same speed, but you might actually run faster than 10 miles an hour, especially if you were feeling good or if you mm-hmm. maybe had some supplement that allowed you to give a little bit more. And so right. when we say clamping, it's essentially would be just imagine setting the treadmill at a certain speed. And then whether you take the supplement or not, you're going to run exactly at that speed. Yeah. Whereas unclamping would be three minutes as fast as you can. And it's easier to think of it on a track or do it on a track. Or if some people I'm sure can do it on a treadmill where they just keep inching it up. But even then, I think there's a tendency to probably just leave it when you would have otherwise adjusted your speed outside. One of the most interesting things also I think about dietary nitrate is people tend to use it interchangeably with beetroot juice. Beetroot juice is the most well-studied form. Dietary nitrates, though, are found in beetroot, in spinach, a number of vegetables, and it's potentially related to a lot of the benefit of vegetables, potentially related to the dietary nitrate content, at least with some Mm -hmm. of the vegetables. But nitrate is just one element of beetroot juice. And interestingly, the studies are not the same when you give a nitrate salt and Mm -hmm. beetroot juice. So while that's kind of a nuanced point, because most people would probably take some kind of beetroot supplement, the nitrate certainly has something to do with it, but it's not the only thing. So there's other polyphenols in the beetroot juice. Betalanes, which is fairly interesting. Beets, chard, amaranthus, they are a different type of phytochemical. And is it just the dietary nitrate or is it the dietary nitrate plus some of the phytochemicals that come along? Yeah, I really think it is. And we we highlight, there's a paragraph or two somewhere in there that shows the studies that used the nitrate salt. So potassium nitrate or something equated for nitrate load is just different effects. So part of it from the practical standpoint is the training intensity, but also at submaximal exercise. So lower intensity, it tends to be reduced oxygen cost. And that's probably similar to what the getting more blood flow to the brain, you're getting blood flow and oxygen to your muscles because of the vasodilation effect. This might be some benefit from a performance standpoint in lower intensity, long duration exercise. But if we're talking about these training adaptations, it probably comes again from this increased training intensity, which it should allow you to do. If you're doing short efforts, anywhere between even 15 seconds to four minute intervals, you'll probably be able to go harder and therefore create that bigger stimulus. Now, there's a few studies that showed muscle fiber type changes. So that's one of the things that also happens during endurance training. We have slow twitch and fast twitch, and then we have these middle ones. Endurance training in general leans your muscles towards the slower twitch endurance type of muscle. And this might actually help potentiate that change even a little bit more. Mm. So it's less well examined, but it's, it might be a potential benefit for someone doing the longer duration, lower intensity training. You might get Mm. these muscle fiber type changes as well. Interesting. If you are a purely glycolytic athlete, you have short intensity, very high, you perhaps might not want to take in beetroot juice. No, I actually wouldn't say that. I guess I kind of insinuated that, but um, I think that's because a lot of your training would be in that high intensity. That will actually help that type of training through the oxygen kinetics. And so if you were doing a lot of, I think you'd only see that if you're doing a lot of aerobic training, but it's a little bit of speculation. I think there is still benefit from a glycolytic, a team sport athlete. There's probably some benefits still to take it. We have a couple of different mechanisms here, increase in blood flow, decreased oxygen cost of muscle contraction, 
can it also have an effect on the efficiency of mitochondria in producing energy? Yeah, it can. It seems to be, and that's a really interesting thing. And it can also mm-hmm. even potentially increase mitochondrial biogenesis, so making more mitochondria. So maybe a little less clear, especially in the context of training adaptations. But there's, yeah, I would say a handful of different ways that it might be beneficial. This might be one of those supplements where unlike sodium bicarbonate, which seems to not have a downside, so you do get both within exercise session enhancement of intensity, and because it's not necessarily limiting lactate production, you probably are not causing a consequence to using Mm -hmm. it in terms of long-term adaptation. But with dietary nitrate, there could be by reducing the oxidative cost of the exercise? Potentially, but I would say that there's still no evidence that it impairs adaptation. So at worst, I should say it's like a net neutral and there might still be some other benefits to getting the beetroot juice in your diet, for example, especially because most people don't consume enough probably vegetables. So then there's a couple other points where it might work slightly differently in people that are habitually really high vegetable eaters versus people that don't eat any vegetables. Also, elite athletes probably need more of beetroot juice to get the same effect from a recreational athletes. So There's a lot of nuance there, but I think if we're thinking back to the practicality, taking enough of it to get a response from it, different products also have different amounts of nitrate in it. So there's some published graphs showing that there's huge variation in how much nitrate is actually in the 20 different beetroot products that are on the market. If you take enough, it's still a net benefit, again, from probably other health-related reasons. You're just cardiovascular health. I don't think there's much of a downside. It can be a little expensive. And if we're thinking in terms of training, it's either going to help or I don't really think it would hurt. In a small percentage of people, there can also be some GI distress. With sodium bicarbonate, you could take it in smaller doses, starting 90 minutes out, leading up to the Mm -hmm. event. With beta alanine, you have to take it probably three or four weeks before Mm -hmm. you start to then increase the amount of beta alanine or a byproduct of it intercellularly, but you do Mm -hmm. ultimately see buffering and an improvement in high-intensity exercise capacity. When would a person take dietary nitrate and is it simply an acute effect or is there also a period where you, as you're taking it, you get an increased benefit over time? Good question. There's probably, it's both acute and chronic. So if you take one dose about two and a half hours before you want it to do its thing, then that can work. A more effective way would be to take it for three to seven days prior to your marathon or something. Then you'd be more likely to see an effect that way. So that's for the acute effect of just enhancing performance for the training. There's no reason you just can't make it part of your diet. I still feel a little reluctant to say that, but it seems like an irresponsible thing to say, but there's no clear reason why it would be a problem to continue taking. That said, I mean, you could still imagine some internal downregulation potentially. I might advise someone to say, take it when you're doing hard training and then maybe back it off if you have a recovery week. So if someone's training like a higher level athlete might be training three hard weeks on or an easy week, maybe taking it during the hard weeks and then backing it off on the easy week. In the face of not perfect information, that seems like a reasonable strategy. Yeah. Perfect meaning very detailed information on different populations over time. I mean, it's a food. You can obviously reduce it into extracts or parts of that food, like just the nitrate. But if you're taking beet, then it is a food. Keep that in mind. Yeah. Let's talk about antioxidants. Why would people think that these could be beneficial in exercise? Up till now, those first three supplements, they seem to really help by increasing the work by allowing increased training stimulus and you can work harder. But in this case, people think if exercise causes oxidation, oxidative stress, then we should take antioxidants to combat that. But in the 1980s, that seemed to become a popular idea. A few minutes ago, I mentioned stuff happens inside the muscle during exercise. That stuff largely is oxidant signaling, reactive oxygen species. That They're messengers within the muscle, among others, that tell your body essentially that it's time to adapt and, and get stronger and get fit or build more mitochondria. So if you take antioxidants, potentially dampening that signal, you're going to get less of a training effect. You're not going to respond to exercise in the same way. 
my show with Professor Dr. Michael Ristow, who did some of the seminal yeah. work in that area. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I'll just remind people of that if they didn't hear that or can't remember, but some of the earlier studies had people train with and without antioxidants. So the group that the placebo group that trained over the course of five or six weeks didn't take antioxidants, had all the expected benefits of exercise, increase in insulin sensitivity, et cetera. Those that did take the antioxidants essentially had the training effect obliterated. That caught people's attention because the idea that oxidations were simply a bad thing and to limit them as much as possible. We learn very clearly that they're providing important signals that yeah. then promote adaptation that we do want. I would say that's extremely clear in the literature, in the scientific yeah. literature, but that hasn't been communicated well to the public. There's certainly been articles about it, but if you see the amount of antioxidants people still take on a regular basis, pretty shocking in some ways, knowing just even the simpler things we just talked about. And in all the clients I've seen over the past, just say several years, so many people come and taking these huge doses of vitamin C, vitamin E. One of the interesting things, I certainly was aware of all the things you said before I started looking at this paper, Yeah, but there actually are no real training studies showing a performance decrement. So the VO2 max, those things still improve similarly, but there is a lot of evidence showing the adaptations, the training don't improve the same way. There's a few ways to take that. It might be that you just need longer time to show that the one group is going to improve more than the other because it's hard to do long training studies. Or it might be that there's some of the signaling is impaired, but your body has these L-safes. There's mm-hmm. different ways that your body adapts. So even if one pathway is blunted, there's another pathway that's still doing all the signaling. That's in the mechanical stress of contraction that's going to be signaling as well. It's complex. There's no reason to take antioxidants in this context of training adaptation. So really for any reason, really. But it's interesting that it's also not as clear as they will blunt all adaptations because there's all the studies that have looked at, let's say, VO2 max. There's none that have shown any differences that I found. At a lecture at the Society for Neuroscience in 2004 on obesity, Dr. Berthaud gave a keynote lecture talking about how the mechanisms regulating obesity are complex, redundant, and distributed. Mm. And that redundancy comment stuck with me. For these fundamental systems in the body and our physiology, it's not just one signal is responsible for that entire effect, but can Mm. be oftentimes multiple signals that are at play. Some other limitations about Dr. Ristow's work is that it was in a population that wasn't trained. So what mm-hmm. about the population who is? What about different higher intensity levels? You could imagine those that are doing ultramarathon multi-day challenges where antioxidants could actually have a beneficial effect. But again, Absolutely. I'd like to see more specific work on that to feel confident in making any sort of recommendation there. I don't know if it was from Dr. Ristow, but someone, there's a great figure in one of the papers discussing all this. And probably some amount of oxidant stimulus that is a good amount and then past that, like I said, like I said, an ultra marathon where it's too much and it probably would, and accidents really would be beneficial. Now where that line is, is really tricky. There's so many different categories and, and these pathways. So there's been some really interesting research from Greece and they do a lot of tailored antioxidant treatments. So measuring people and seeing which things are high or low and, and showing improved health outcomes and training outcomes when you adjust really specifically for them. More than the other supplement categories here, I think it's super hard to give some blanket statements here. My recommendation for those who are listening, until we do have more knowledge there, I would let that research play out a little bit before mucking around with it. Yeah, an important takeaway is exercise is an antioxidant itself, right? And one of the most interesting findings related to this I've come across is that there was a pretty big study, and I don't have it in front of me, but looking at athletes, number of years training was the greatest predictor of antioxidant status, so endogenous antioxidant status, so what our body's capable of just on its own, naturally, or internally. The number of years training is the best predictor of that. 
more so than any type of diet or any type of supplement someone was taking. Basically, training itself is what increases that internal defense system. Really, exercise is the way to increase your own antioxidant status. If you think about what oxidant signals are doing from exercise, they are stimulating pro-survival pathways that then increase the body's endogenous antioxidant capacity. Yep, exactly. So this is a nice segue from primary antioxidants, which are agents that directly quench free radicals in the cytosol, into polyphenols, which are considered secondary antioxidants. Mm -hmm. They might have some primary antioxidant activity themselves, but they're primarily basically like exercise in that they cause free radicals to be induced, and then that induces our body's ability to then enhance its own antioxidant capacity. Let's talk about what we know about polyphenols in the context of sports performance. Not a lot. Even among the polyphenols, there's different ones, right? So we can think about green tea extract and resveratrol. Green tea, maybe an easier one to wrap our head around first. That probably does favor fat oxidation. That doesn't mean it's going to help you lose weight or lose fat per se. But if you're doing a submaximal exercise, let's say a marathon pace type of jogging, and you've taken an appropriate amount of green tea extract, then you probably will be burning more fat compared with carbohydrate relative to what you would be if you hadn't taken that. So there's potential for some benefit there. The idea you want to be in the fat burning zone because if you're burning fat, then you're going to reduce fat. Tell me about your thoughts if that is the correct way to think about this. It's a good question. I think a yes and no. Actually, if we then think to the the podcast with Javier Gonzalez, if you do what is really interesting that, that he talked about his recent findings, if you do fasted exercise, if you burn more of your liver carbohydrate stores, you're going to eat more at lunch than if you did fasted exercise and didn't burn as much of your liver exercise. So doing the same exercise but burning more fat relative to carbohydrate, you're mm-hmm. not going to have the same compensatory eating. So there's some potential there for not burning through your liver glycogen during a morning fasted, let's say, endurance workout. And there may be some benefit. In the big picture, no, I've never suggested green tea extract to any weight loss client. So mm-hmm. I guess I should have just started with that. Whether or not burning more fat during exercise is a requisite for losing fat, I don't think that's the case. And I think, again, it relates probably to that liver glycogen story. That's a relatively new thing to be understood. Those are my brief thoughts on that. I know that's a little bit of a departure of the idea that do these have an enhancement in exercise performance or adaptation to exercise. We can circle back there now, but it sounds like we just have less work on it. And then if we sidestep the resveratrol, which is also a polyphenol, it does activate CERT1 and can shift muscle fibers towards that oxidative phenotype, so things that are similar to exercise in a sense. But then when we see studies of taking it during exercise, it blunts these improvements. So I can't give people much practical recommendation other than that I would not take it or would not recommend it for people generally. Anything else interesting about green tea extract? It can affect the ability of the body to burn more fat during exercise, whether or not that's a good thing, not entirely sure. Does it do anything else that might actually enhance exercise? It can favor beta fat oxidation. And so if there was maybe like a time to exhaustion at a low intensity, if you're maybe going for a hike, I don't know that it's that practically useful, though, to be honest. Yeah. Okay, cool. Now let's move to creatine. What is creatine and what is it mostly used for? It's mostly thought of as, you know, for bodybuilders, but it's amazing all the different things it does can even affect uh, burn motility, I believe. The ranging from sleep to the sperm quality, it's... It functions as part of an energy pathway. If there is a miracle supplement in this of what we've been talking about, I suppose it would be that. Although that said, in the context of endurance training, it's not very well studied. Realistically, it can potentially help by allowing that increasing intensity. It might help you improve energy production. So these 15-second performance intervals, again, using these maximal efforts are probably where you're going to see benefit. But it also can act as an antioxidant. It can reduce it for oxidation. There's only a few training studies 
which is not that much of a difference, but I think they're not necessarily looking at the right things at a long enough time. Mm-hmm. But if we think of it as a, we have these different energy systems and it's a key part of our short-term energy system. So that if you were to stand up right now or jump onto a desk, that would be the creatine phosphate system that's providing most of that energy. So if we're doing these short sprints, we can feel depleted after eight or 12 seconds and we recover that creatine phosphate system is what's being replenished and then allows us to kind of do these repeated sprints by taking creatine it essentially increases the pool in our muscles above depending on your diet it might be walking around let's say half full or something and by taking creatine over time it increases so you have a greater pool to pull from its effects are so wide-ranging i think even there's some benefit in percussion and aerobic metabolism so people wouldn't think of it benefits cycling but it probably could we think of it relative to something called the Lohman reaction it's pre-glycolytic, but it's the energy that you're going to use for a burst of activity less than 10 or 15 seconds. If you take exogenous creatine in supplemental form, then you can store more of it in your muscles. That pulls water in with it. That in itself might actually be part of the training benefit. So if you're increasing mass within the muscles, you might actually be able to have greater contractile force simply because the muscles are more turgid or filled with water. And then that might allow for greater training intensity, which might allow for greater stimulus of protein synthesis. So it is really an interesting one. One of the concerns is that water weight. There's a great study in well-trained cyclists with carb loading and creatine loading. Both carb loading and creatine loading will cause some increased water retention, but it's useful water. It's in your muscles. So despite a 2.5% increase in body mass, there was a greater power output during these sprints within 120 kilometer time trials. What that means is a long 120-kilometer time trial. So think of it as like a long race, but there's some sprints in between. You're going to be able to sprint better in the midst of a cycling race or or running race. And also that didn't affect their uphill cycling capacity. So the weight is usually what's important for uphill cycling. It didn't impair that cycling, that small amount of extra weight, but it allowed them to sprint better. Even in the context of a road cyclist doing long events, there's some, some benefit there. I have taken it before from a long time ago. I'm a responder, so I'll gain 10 or 15 pounds oh, when wow. I take it. And every time I'll gain about that much weight. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have to go up a jacket size. That's interesting. Yeah, it doesn't affect me. I pretty much just stay on it and separate from our conversation with regard to supplements and training. But Chris Masterjohn has talked about mm-hmm. people with MTHFR deficiencies and creatine is, is a key role in the methylation pathway and it affects mm-hmm. your need for choline. And so anyone with low energy Creatine could help or it affects the choline and methyl donor needs. That's great. Let's talk about caffeine. 80% of the United States Mm. is some form of caffeine daily, the most widely used supplement, but it's also definitely discussed in the context of sports performance. What do we know about it? It's pretty clearly, now that there's, some will argue based on the genetics, but pretty clearly enhances endurance performance for around 2 to 3%, anywhere from like in six-minute time trial performance to two-and-a-half-hour time trial performance. So it's pretty clear. Again, you can find studies that don't show an effect, or you can show an effect that some genetic types be better. But generally speaking, it's pretty clear that it works. Anywhere between 3 to 6 milligrams per kilogram, which to me just seems crazy high because I'm sensitive to caffeine. So for me, one milligram per kilogram will do have a nice effect on me. It's suggested that habitual caffeine use will decrease its efficacy. And I've heard athletes come and say they don't take any caffeine for a week or two weeks before a race. It doesn't seem to be necessary. You might have to take a little bit more than if you were off it, but it'll help performance in whether you're habitually low, moderate, or high consumers of caffeine. Mm-hmm. And even there was a recent study that gave caffeine every day for 20 days and it continued to produce the therapeutic effects. Now, there has not been any training studies, which is so interesting. There was one with serious design flaws that groups weren't controlled for caffeine, so there wasn't any differences in caffeine intake. Also, really, effectively, there's been no training studies in caffeine 
it within the similar to the context that we're talking about here with endurance training. There's no reason to think that it wouldn't be beneficial. It generally works. There's a number of ways that it's suggested to work, but generally it seems to be that essentially you can lower the perceived effort of workouts. You're going to be able to do more work during an interval workout, create more lactate, all these things. If you're taking caffeine, that's probably how it works. There's no reason to think that you should not take it before training, although it really hasn't been studied similar to the way the antioxidant or the study the training study or the beta alanine. Similar to the beetroot juice, right? Beetroot, we're talking about, it has a high level of nitrate that can hurt the nitric oxide. But then with beets, you also have betalanes and other mm-hmm. phytonutrients that then could also be secondarily affecting performance. If you think of caffeine, you tend to think of coffee, but it also is in teas. Teas and coffee both have other substances in there that could be mm-hmm. affecting. And there has been some interesting research, not necessarily in the sports performance context, looking at the differences between just taking caffeine and taking things like coffee and teas. I like to get my caffeine in the form of coffee, not a caffeine pill. I tend to go with the caffeine pill, with caffeine and theanine, actually. It uh-huh. also can have its own effects. As far as sports performance, at least acutely, caffeine pills or coffee or however it comes, they all seem to have the same effect. So the short-term performance impact is roughly the same. But I think there's a real good case to be made that the long-term effects of the polyphenols in the tea or coffee would probably have some additional, probably beneficial effects. With regard to training, there's certainly beneficial effects pretty clear in terms of other health-related things, but as far as our training adaptations here, most likely. Yeah, that's good to know. Coffee beans have phenylindanes in them, which have been shown to reduce beta amyloid and tau aggregation, so that could prevent Alzheimer's disease. We see a decreased risk of mortality for long-term coffee consumers, and then it also has chlorogenic acid, which has interesting effects on diabetes and weight, so you could be getting additional benefits in addition to the caffeine with your coffee. I have a cup of coffee usually before I work out, but only one in the morning, and then I cut it off so it doesn't Mm. affect my sleep at night. Jeff, is there anything outside of what we've talked about that has caught your interest there's a product called Lactigo, which is a topical carnosine. Just take a step back to our beta-alanine conversation. We take beta-alanine, but it actually what it's doing is raising carnosine in our muscles. It works better to take the beta-alanine, which is the limiting factor compared to taking carnosine, which will be metabolized and not make it to the muscle the same way. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it's a pain. I talked about take beta-alanine four times a day for four weeks with a little bit of tingling before you potentially see these changes. So there's there's a topical gel that purports to get it right into your muscle. That's, they're doing some trials to, to show that efficacy, but that's pretty interesting because it really saves a lot of trouble. So they're looking at it now. Theoretically, you could take it less frequently and it might have a faster effect. It would be, in theory, an acute effect. And personally, I do think it has those effects, but I want to see some, some studies. Beyond that, my interest now, more specifically, is I don't think we mentioned I'm doing my PhD research in training adaptations, but the effects of nutrition and it's similar to some of the studies that Javier Gonzalez has been doing lab, but a little bit different angles on them, looking at fasted training and eating carbohydrate beforehand or just protein beforehand. And again, it's the same concept we talked about. There's signaling that happens inside your muscle, and it can be related to the energy intensity, the volume, the substrate metabolism, so your energy sensing pathways, that both supplements can affect also food, and then how much your muscle is contracting. All these things that are affected by supplements can also be affected by food. Do you eat beforehand? Do you not eat beforehand? But if you eat are you having toast and a banana? Are you eating eggs? So that's really where my focus has shifted towards. With my conversation with Keith Barr, professor at UC Davis, he was talking about the ingestion of collagen 15 minutes prior mm-hmm. to doing some sort of exercise and the benefit that that has on tendons. Yeah. So where things like whey protein and other forms of protein, you want to have them within a window after exercise to support muscle protein synthesis. 
because the tendons are relatively avascular, meaning they don't have good blood flow supply, the way that they get collagen into those fibers to strengthen them is almost like a sponge. Imagine you're doing some jump rope and you have collagen peptides 15 minutes beforehand. You're going to get more collagen into your Achilles tendon. Once it's in the bloodstream, it's going to pull that into the ligaments and that's going to cause them to be stronger over time. That was an excellent show. I think I listened to twice. But it's 15 grams of collagen about 60 minutes beforehand. It'll be work a little bit better. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. So you listened to it twice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good. Yeah. So 15 grams of collagen, 60 minutes before. Good clarification yeah. there. I think 45 to 60 minutes, if I recall. But, but yeah, not 15. Yeah. It needs a little more time. But anyway, yeah, that's exactly right. So what we're taking in our body, whether it's supplement or whether it's a food supplement like a collagen or even carbohydrate or protein, it's affecting the stuff that happens inside our muscle in response yeah. to that exercise has been underappreciated until I'd say fairly recently. After the Javier Gonzalez show, I've been playing around with the after intense exercise, the ingestion of some fructose to restore muscle liver glycogen. Fructose does restore liver glycogen well. If you can replete your liver glycogen stores right. that have a positive effect on leptin signaling, if you can maintain your leptin mm. signaling, and that might actually lead to faster body fat loss in response to your high exercise training. I have to say, and of one, not a lot of experience with it, I do notice that if I have a coconut water right after an intense exercise training, usually I won't be hungry for half an hour after exercising, and then I'll be really, really hungry. And with the addition of the coconut water, then I feel it was totally normal and fun. Like I didn't exercise that day. It's interesting, yeah. Well, Jeff, this is really interesting stuff. And to circle back to a key takeaway here, we talked about the acute effects, but to that question that you got, which stimulated this deep dive, what are the supplements that you have people use regularly versus conditionally? We got to take a hypothetical context of maybe a, I, someone who trains a lot, maybe not a professional athlete, but someone who's doing a lot of endurance training, let's just say seven to 15 hours a week or more. I think beta-alanine is something they could definitely stay on. Caffeine before workouts, creatine, something they could stay on, and then maybe beetroot juice. But I would say those three, and then some, and then maybe the bicarbonate before hard workouts. I'd be fine with someone that's actually taking bicarbonate before every workout, but really that taste stuff, I wouldn't want to ask someone to take that all the time. Generally, at least maybe before hard workouts, they could add that in. Creatine and beta-alanine just as the daily thing. Of course, it goes without saying, it's, it's assuming there's no other health issue, not yeah. giving medical advice. But someone who's just otherwise healthy and wants to optimize, yeah, I would say the creatine is daily, beta-alanine daily, caffeine as desired. And then um, if you want to bump up and add the bicarb before a hard workout, that would be really nice. I know this was an absolute bear of a review paper to how long did it take you? Oh, gosh. I've thought about trying to add up the hours because the Microsoft Word document will kind of accumulate the minutes, but um, I'd be afraid to. I mean, a year off and on. But just I, part of me is curious, part of me doesn't want to know how many hours. I really appreciate you coming on, Jeff, and your work to collaborate with us at HumanOS. It's greatly appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks for listening, and come visit us soon at humanos.me.